Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, Head of Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. So today I'm pleased to be talking with Krishna Gomez. Krishna is a foresight practitioner working with civil society organisations around the world to help magnify their impact and innovation capabilities. She uses foresight, design thinking, systems thinking and other methods not normally employed in the social change field to help partners tackle long-standing problems with a fresh perspective and open them up to other disciplines such as neuroscience, tech, marketing and design. We'll include a longer bio in the episode description, but Krishna's background is as a human rights lawyer, a grassroots organiser, academic and research and advocacy lead on civil society space and building narratives across the human rights sector. Krishna's written the new Just Lab's Guide to Foresight in the Social Change Field, which we'll be talking about today, and is now dedicating her consultancy career to this discipline. She's also an old friend and collaborator of the Centre with our innovation report on populism in 2019, so we're really looking forward to our conversation today. We're also recording with a live audience from our Scanning the Horizon Civil Society Futures community, so welcome all and welcome Krishna. So, Chris, could you start by telling us a bit about your own journey into foresight, how it's helped you in your human rights and social change work, and why this is now what you've decided to dedicate yourself to? So, the journey, I think I will summarize that journey with a scene. That scene is 3 a.m. in a hotel in Nairobi. At that time, I was working for Just Labs, which is an innovation and experimentation space for social change actors. I ended up at Just Labs from being a human rights lawyer, a grassroots organizer in the Philippines, and then working for a Colombian human rights NGO because I wanted to help create a space where activists and researchers like me can just play with things, break things, remake them, so we can come up with solutions to really complex problems fast without having perfection. So I was at Just Labs, and suddenly, as someone trained in law and in human rights, I started picking up new things and new skills that I never thought I would learn doing human rights work, like design thinking, theory of change, contemplative practices. We were getting trained on how to use meditation, for example, in working with activists. And then at that moment, at 3 a.m., preparing for a workshop, with human rights leaders from across Africa. I was in Nairobi and looking at our agenda that I was going to facilitate and I thought there's something missing here. We were going to ask these human rights leaders to come up with ideas on how to increase the impact of human rights work at a moment when everyone thought we were going through a crisis. This was at a time when this whole term of closing civic space was becoming more and more popular. And we were using predominantly design thinking where people, you know, are encouraged to think fast, really experiment, iterate, uh, and not be precious with their ideas. And usually great ideas come from that. But I felt like people could easily get tired having to turn out new exciting ideas but then when the situation changes the next day or the next year, they will have to do that process all over again and come up with another set of brilliant ideas. I felt we needed to anchor ourselves in something that would ensure that whatever creative ideas we'll have, they'll be creative and effective in the long term. And so I started Googling 
for activities. And I stumbled upon the work of a foresight practitioner that I thought, this is brilliant. This is going to take people in a very different mindset. And I didn't know that that was what we call now futures thinking of foresight. And so what I've been doing since then is to really constantly integrate foresight in everything else that I do or I work with, with the partners I have. So they come to me, they say, I want to work on narratives or I want to get new ideas on innovation. And I'm like, great, let's do that with foresight. So that's how I ended up there. Thanks. And I think both you and us at the center are becoming quite evangelical about foresight, particularly in the social change field. So what is your vision for foresight in the social change field? And why do you feel that practitioners really need to develop these mindsets and muscles? My vision is really to have foresight be democratized and for it to go beyond, you know, the small, very technical and specialized circles that it currently sits in. Personally, I learned about foresight first through just reading and reading and reading and using the partners I worked with as guinea pigs to make sure I knew what I was reading. And then I got training at the Institute for the Future, which was fantastic. But that and most of the trainings in foresight are either very expensive, very exclusive, or people don't even know to search for them. I wanted, and my vision for Foresight is for it to be something so ubiquitous, not only in terms of the toolkits of people, but in the way that we think, that it becomes second nature. The way I see Foresight is, it's not like a new tool in a toolkit even. I imagine it as the contours or the toolbox itself where everything will be contained or that holds everything together. So it's not something that will be separate, but something that will be mainstreamed and integrated in every tool that we use. So for example, strategic planning, that's something that we use all the time. Everyone does their strategic planning process every couple of years. And for me, foresight will then be scaffolding that will help deliver a more powerful and enduring and a future-proof strategy. Another way would be in coming up with our strategic communications or coming up with narratives, an area that I also work in. Foresight will help people think of narratives that are not just based on realities today or in the immediate past, but narratives of a very compelling future that you want people to work with you on, to be part of. So I want foresight to be something not technical, not exclusive, but every grassroots worker, every national level NGO, every group, non-organized, will just think is normal and is a common way of thinking. So I think this idea that foresight and futures thinking is not technical and it's also not mystical. And you've really wanted with the new foresight guide from Just Labs to demystify some of the key elements for practitioners and make it really accessible to them with clear steps that they can follow. So Krishna, what are your hopes for the guide? I would like for every strategic manager and leader and facilitator in an organization to have it in their folder, to download the PDF and doodle on it and really use it, quote unquote, bastardize it and really appropriate it according to their needs and their context. My vision would be for people to even come back to me and say, you know what, let's make some of these changes to this and that activity because this is how it has worked. That's my vision of it. I would love for it to really be used instead of something that will live online that will look pretty. It's uh, definitely beautiful to look at, but it's also one of the most engaging and accessible formats that, oh, that I've, I've seen.
I mean, you've talked a bit about that you outline the steps of a foresight process, which people can follow. You've also followed this yourself in a look at the future of media and communications and trying to look at new areas we should explore and think about. What trajectories have you found which we should be paying attention to in our work? Maybe a bit of a background as to why I am particularly interested in the future of media and communication. So one of the fields of work that I've been working on from Just Labs until now, because of my work on civil society space, is on narratives. And so everyone is really preoccupied with how do we win hearts and minds and change public perception about rights and the importance of rights or social change. So with that, I'm going to share with you what really I've picked up from the different works on the future of media and communications and primarily from the work that was done by the Institute for the Future in 2017 on the future of media. I'll start by tracing for us really the three stages on media that will get us to that future. And the first stage really is what is very familiar to all of us, which is mass media, where you have the television and the radio and information for the first time ever was broadcasted massively, but through a few big entities, your TV stations, your radio stations, but information started becoming massified. Then the next stage that we know about very well today is social media, where the number of actors who can hold, transmit, and mediate information became even bigger. And that ordinary people now had the power without going through the big radio stations or TV stations to share information, to share their views, and to become authors and opinion makers. Now, according to the Institute for the Future, the next or the third stage will be what they call ambient media. What do they mean by this? I will illustrate it first through what we now call IOT or Internet of Things. Basically, it's when your refrigerator, your toaster, your washing machine has a chip in that device that um, has artificial intelligence that can record information from something as basic as the amount of laundry detergent that you use, the amount of laundry detergent that remains, even perhaps a type of laundry detergent that you have. It is currently there now that technology and we foresee that this internet of things will just keep growing where at some point, almost every electronic device in your home will be recording things and will be connected to one another. So your refrigerator could be talking to your washing machine or your washing machine or your refrigerator could be talking to your mobile phone. And at some point, maybe your refrigerator will see that we're now out of milk or it's now empty. It's time to now connect to Amazon to make orders online for the things that are missing in your refrigerator. So basically, we will go from this one powerful device, which is the smartphone, to now having so many devices receiving information, collecting information, exchanging information, and giving information to you. And that's what they call ambient media. Because with a mobile device, you still have a screen interface. You turn on or you swipe your screen interface to receive or give information. But in ambient media, information is all around you. It's in your surroundings, hence the word ambient. From having smartphones, televisions and computers as the collector and transmitter of information, we're looking at objects, 
surroundings, and even living things as sources of media, communications, and information. And so you can imagine that from having one device with which you interact, information flow will actually feel like a kaleidoscope as a whole sensory of experiences where instead of you connecting with your devices or connecting with information, information will actually envelope your entire being, hence ambient media. So how might ambient media transform our information environment? From the increase in number and type of devices that collect and transmit information and communications, there's another aspect of this ambient media, which is information will constantly be collected from a variety of sources, from more sources, and usually this is happening invisibly and without us even knowing it. What do I mean by that? Before, when we want to get information about people, we do focus group discussions. Right now, we do focus group discussions, we do surveys. It's still more intentional. There's still a threshold by which people say, this is what I want, this is what I don't want. But in this future where living things, including human beings, will be sources of information, technologies such as our smart watches will be transmitting information about our heartbeat, our perspiration, biometric data that will then tell marketers, urban planners, musicians about our feeling at the very moment. And content can then be instantly altered to be personalized given our current emotional states. So this image is really showing you a hyper personalization of content. We already know that there's a lot of personalization going on because of algorithms, but algorithms will only become one. There will be other sources coming straight from our bodies that will then make sure that what we receive is highly personalized and instant to our state. And we might think that this is all sci-fi, Chris, uh, but in fact, the popular saying in Foresight is the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. We're already seeing precursors of this, and some of them are from already a few years back. We know that in Sweden, people have started inserting microchips under their skin. Right now, so for limited use, either to open your apartment door or to be able to swipe your arm at the train station, containing information such as passwords and other basic personal information. So this um, Canadian electronic duo, in one of their shows, they put heart rate monitors in their fans to find out which sets actually made their fans more excited, which ones really worked, which didn't. And then they changed and they adapted the performance live given what the heart rate monitors were showing or transmitting to them. And now we also have this technology called holoportation. As far back as 2016, we already got demonstration from Microsoft Research where they showed how different individuals can through the use augmented reality or virtual reality while wearing particular kind of lens can actually experience being in the same room as someone who is not physically there. Through the use of different contraptions and devices, you can actually see your own child being virtually projected in front of you, life-size, even if she's actually not there. And now, just in March of this year, Microsoft came out with Microsoft Mesh, Azure and HoloLens, basically using that technology and a few others that will change the way first we communicate 
that we can do collaboration in our offices. So you can imagine right now we do Zoom and other platforms to have these virtual encounters with our colleagues, but we can actually use that technology now to have co-presence, virtual co-presence with colleagues who are located somewhere else. What does that mean for the way that we connect with others? This ambient technology where it's not just a static 2D experience of information and sensory experiences, but something that is really 3D or even beyond. So what might this mean for the work that we do, for example, in communicating to our audiences and communities? It means that we will go from merely looking at demographic characteristics of, you know, when we define audiences, rural women in these states in India who are of this age and that age who have these characteristics, we will then hyper-tailor our message based on those demographic characteristics. But we will now move from demographic characteristics to real-time emotional states where people will be transmitting without knowing and using their bodies as sources of communication or information. We will also move from being or having to be wordsmiths and having the perfect how many characters of Twitter posts or other types of posts from words and lines to full sensory immersive experiences. What does that then mean for, say, the capabilities of our staff and our communications team? Should they be not only good at words, to also knowing how to create full immersive experiences for our target communities. And aside from the things that it will demand from our organizations and the partners we work with, there are also a lot of opportunities. This might all seem scary when you see these things, but there are actually opportunities. There are at least two that I will point out right now. The first one is what we call persistent witnessing. Because of the ubiquity of video cameras, and devices to record things, it will allow activists, for example, a lot of methods to be able to record abuses or situations that need action for their causes. We're already seeing this, right? This is nothing new. We see the, the smartphone, but more than that, not only the smartphone, but everything around us that can record things that are going on and they can mobilize and utilize that for their causes. The second one is there's actually a huge potential for creating broad-based empathy and even intimacy in this new ambient media future. How is that? Through social media, we've become privy to the lives of billions of people by being able to have a look at their lives, them sharing their day-to-day -day experiences, what they ate for breakfast, what their heartbreak is, etc. But still, that peak is a static peak. It's, it's a 2D peak where you read lines, or maybe you watch a video, or you listen to audio. But in this ambient media, that peek into people's lives can now become fully immersive, even visceral. And it helps create greater or perhaps even deeper empathy when you can walk through a virtual experience of being in a mining field somewhere in Papua New Guinea instead of just reading about it through the post or seeing the photos online. Intimacy is also possible. I know this might seem like, no, actually, it will create barriers. It will. But because of so much information happening, there will be technology and people will demand technology by which you can create subtler and more real physical interactions. Like haptic technology is basically where you can use, for example, your clothing to be able to feel 
or transmit sensations. You can get a hug from perhaps the shirt or the jacket that you're wearing. So can you imagine what the potential that will be for creating intimacy across distances? And finally, Chris, how can organizations position themselves better to be able to understand and work with these changes? For all of us to be able to utilize these opportunities or take advantage of them, one thing that I would encourage us to really look into, which is the importance of integrating neuroscience and psychology in our strategy, in our communications, in the way that we decide our tactics. Because all of these things at the end of the day operate and become successful or backfire based on how they are integrating insights from how the human brain works, how people respond to certain stimuli, what are people's emotions given certain stimuli. In short, for us, I would encourage that we do something that is called future benchmarking. You know how benchmarking is, you follow the gold standard of the leader in the field. So if you see that this big international NGO is now doing this, then you evolve to be able to adopt what we call the best practices of the leader in the field. But the problem with that is what, the moment you get to do that, it will take you a while to get there. By the time you get there and you've adopted that best practice, it already is passing. That leader in the field would have already moved on to the next innovation. So instead of benchmarking, we should do future benchmarking where we anticipate the best practices of the leader in our field in the future and start doing that today. So from the saying that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Let's just keep using it until it works. It should be if it works, it's already obsolete. That's great. Thanks very much, Chris. A lot of thoughts, a lot of food for thought there. From my immediate reaction, some real fears about hyper micro targeting and also just wondering if it would have made a difference if I'd been able to meet in 3D with my hologram colleagues throughout the lockdown. So we're now going to invite questions or responses from our audience here. Hi everyone, and thanks so much, Chris. Now, this is um, Thomas. I work for Oxfam in Mexico as an influencing advisor. My question is around this aspect of kind of demystifying and democratizing, which I'm really glad you kind of brought to the fore. At Oxfam, we use theory of change development a lot, and I think that's taken a long period of time to demystify. And actually, actually, a lot of the time we're talking about thinking about context, not just in the present, but thinking about past context and future context and, and bringing that into our thinking in terms of our analysis and deciding on what our strategies are. Is there a risk that this is a new buzzword, a new area of work, which actually we're doing already somewhat? Because I get a sense that there's some of that with theory of change, for instance. And if so, what can we do to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes that we've made in the past with things like theory of change, where we haven't managed to really democratize and demystify that very well. Thanks, Thomas. That, that is one of my biggest fears as well, for this to be another buzzword. And that's why when I work with partners on Foresight, what I really try to do is find entry points of things they're already doing or tools they're already using and really show them this isn't actually very different from what you're doing. You already see there are very strong connections, say, between foresight and theory of change, because really it's asking you to create a roadmap to a very clear idea of change that you want to get to. The difference with foresight, I think, is, and this is what I then explain to people when I say, okay, this is what you're already doing. It's very much related to this, but this is the difference. Number one is 
Normally, what I find when social change organizations use theory of change or other kinds of tools, we tend to focus on realities or trends even that are limited to the social field, political and political field or spheres. Foresight forces us to really look at other spheres that normally we don't even entertain. There's what we call STEEP or S-T-E-E-P in foresight, which is looking at areas that are social, technological, environmental, economic, and political. Because we know that something that's happening in the tech field can have huge ramifications in our political and social sphere. Or something in the environment or economics can interact with something that's happening in politics. This kind of web thinking and not columns or categorical thinking, it doesn't come naturally to people, right? So for me, the way to make foresight not a buzzword is really not to introduce it as something, hey, this is a new cool thing, but this is what you're already doing. These are the things that are working really great. And here's something that, that can make basically make the different connections. So that's one way, which is showing the different perspectives or areas we normally don't consider. The other thing that I then explained to partners is, aside from looking at it from a almost horizontal different spheres kind of way, it's also a way to look at different levels, vertical kind of way. What do I mean by that? When we use theory of change or even design thinking, normally we tend to be attracted to things that are predominant like trends. Or if you have your newspaper, you're looking at the headline or, or the top stories. Foresight, it's like having a new muscle where you also turn to the bottom right corner small article in page 14 of your newspaper or after 20 swipes in your app. And we normally don't get that kind of muscle using other toolkits. So for me, the way to get foresight really integrated into people's way of working is not to say, okay, we're going to do an organization-wide foresight process now uh, because everyone else is doing it, but this is what we've already been doing. We're just going to add muscles here and there that can really strengthen the ones we already have. My name is Modani. I was at Oxfam. I'm now with UN Women. You know, I was really excited to join this session. The reason is, I think that this value of these conversations on foresight, on, on what is actually happening in other sectors, especially for the development sector to understand what is happening in other sectors, is that our work essentially focuses on people, people's agencies, and how people are experiencing their lives. And when I see the ecosystem, how quickly it's changing or going to change around people, my biggest concern is people's agency. If you see what's happening with the vaccine, if you're in my country and I come from Kenya, the potential of, you know, my relatives in rural areas getting a vaccine is 2023, 20, 24, irrespective of what else happens to them. And that's just 1950s technology, if we say vaccine, right? go, you know, fast forward to all the things that you've just talked about, where does that leave the rest? And how do you speed up the access so that there's some sort of distributed agency and people are not pawns or just left helpless? I think for the development sector, this is a, the person and the agency of people. It's an ever-present 
motivator as well as concerned. So your thoughts on this would be very welcome. Thanks, Mutani. I love your question about distributed agency because that's actually one of the reasons that I fell in love with Foresight. I'll answer your question in, in two ways. The first one is what it is about Foresight that actually enables or even highlights distributed agency, as you call it. And second is the future or one of the futures we're heading to that will actually put front and center this thing that you call agency. So the beauty about Foresight is it's really only as reliable and powerful if it's inclusive. You know how a lot of the processes that we do in organizations where you have, you lead the decision making or the forecasting, which is actually quite different from Foresight as I explain it, to the executives, to consultants who then tell you this is the future, these are the futures you look at. Those things are not reliable and they're not really meaningful. The foresight that I'm really passionate about is the foresight where you bring everyone across the organization from program to admin, to all kinds of support, to the leaders, of course, and even external critical peers to come together because foresight is most powerful when the views you bring in are diverse and sometimes even conflicting. So to people who say, okay, let's do foresight. Can you then create some scenarios for us? And I'm like, no, I'm just gonna facilitate. So then you can have the right environment where you can bring in everyone for an inclusive process. That's the first part. The second part is, given what I just shared about the future of media and communications, there's actually something that's very relevant to what you talked about. This future is named Bob Johansson. He has a book, I highly recommend it, called The 10 New Leadership Literacies for the Future. And he talks about basically the future of organizations. And he, he used the model of the internet to show that the evolution of organizations. He started with, we know how the internet started as something central. There's one source or let's say one node and the information was distributed from there. They found out that's not reliable. That's a big risk because if that node or center falls apart, then everything falls apart. Then the internet moved to a decentralized network where you have very different nodes that connect with one another, but there's still somehow a center. And then you have the next stage, which is a distributed network where it's greater decentralization of the nodes of power. What he's saying is that the future of organizations is not even this distributed thing. He likens it to like, imagine a fishnet on the floor. It has those different grids of the net. Given a particular cause or, or situation, whether it be a protest or a certain moment in history, one part of the net will rise and lead and then when it's done, it will go down. And at another point, another part of the net will rise and lead. And he said that the best and the biggest innovations will come from the fringes and no one can control them. But somehow those different nodes will be talking to one another, but there's no one leader. And there are already precursors to this. The best example is Wikipedia. It's the biggest encyclopedia in the world. People, a lot, most of them unpaid, are spending hours creating entries on Wikipedia. People are spending time unpaid to help create knowledge. And no one controls that. Well, there's Wikipedia, the organization, but really it's a mass collection of the creation of one big value, which is knowledge. 
So this is where we're headed. And so in terms of the development world and communities and really that distribution of power, we're simply headed there. But then there are barriers for that to be fully realized or be realized fast enough. And those barriers come from either government or even the way that development organizations are structured or the way we work, right? Whether we create barriers for people to really have that agency or that centrality of voice in designing what's in the agenda, how things are done. But basically, you're already foretelling where we're headed. We just, in our strategies, need to be mindful how to hasten the things we want to see and not stop them. The next question comes from Poonam from FIX, the Funders Initiative for Civil Society. Go ahead, please. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you, Chris. And I, I think it's brilliant what you're doing in terms of democratizing this. We know within philanthropy, we know some of the larger foundations are able to invest resources in, in foresight, futures thinking, and it often doesn't get shared, even within philanthropy, let alone with civil society. I think one of the things that we know that certain sectors have been engaging in foresight and other kinds of futures work for, for many years and sit on a whole range of resources and occasionally things will make it into the news like this shell's very famous sort of futures work from a couple of decades ago or I, I might take a look at moody's and look at what investors are coming out with but i do it in a sort of very ad hoc random fashion and i wonder if it's possible as part of that being able to access what other sectors are thinking and how they're making decisions. It'd be great to almost have a central resource of what's good quality, because it can also take you down some very strange routes and that you're actually trying to anticipate the decisions that they're going to make. And is there some way of piggybacking on the back of that work? So that was one question. I guess the second one was around, and so I've been in rooms where we're, we are trying to sort of imagine the future and we can imagine all the bad scenarios but we're really struggling to imagine what kind of institutions or frameworks might be needed to take us towards a different future so i'm kind of curious if that's come up in the work that you're doing thanks Puna. the central repository i have the same frustration because what i'm doing is basically what you're trying to do i try to read as much as i can books and all these forecasts and a lot of them really are catered towards those particular sectors, they are helpful to a certain extent, but also given their particular goals. Like in business, it's profit, right? And you already see that the way they framed or in terms of the things that they're looking for, they're headed for very different things. That doesn't make them entirely useless, but there's a lot of mediating of the information and insight that needs to be done. Central repository, I think what we can start doing, and that's what I start doing, by the way, in the guide. At the end of the guide, I put in there some suggested readings. And my hope is that, that when people get there, it will take them farther down trajectories that they think are helpful to them. I curated that myself, knowing precisely what you spoke about. The danger with the central repository, as we all know, is that curation involves biases. For example, a lot of the things that I've seen within our field in the development field or humanitarian field, a lot of them are already much more related than something from business, but still something that will not be so useful, for example, for a human rights defense organization in a province in the Philippines. So even within our field, the way that these resources are done, their content, their style, also do not necessarily speak to a lot of the needs of very diverse other actors within our field. 
I think even within the scanning community, and I know you're sharing information all the time, if we can have almost like a curation of resources by diverse actors within the community and already doing the next step, which is instead of just sending, this is the list of the coolest new resources, but already a lot of the insights and then the, the thinking or the annotation behind the curation, I think will really help. It can drown out a lot of the noise and a lot of the unuseful stuff for us who don't have all the time or who don't dedicate all their time to foresight. Your other question, there's a good way to do that. So aside from Three Horizons, one thing that I've used is this thing. So Jim Dater, one of the big foresight practitioners and academics in the world, he has this thing called Four Types of Futures. And he says that futures, there are basically four types of them. A future of growth, which is imagine GDP, right? GDP, more, there are changes, it increases or decreases, but it's a stable change. That's one, future of growth. The next one is a future of transformation, where the critical element in society gets addressed and things become much better. Say if we solve climate change. The third one is a scenario of decline or collapse, where the opposite of transformation, we're not able to address that one critical factor in society, and then what happens after that. The fourth one is something that people have difficulty in imagining, is a future of constraint or discipline. What is that? So imagine if one almost artificial factor or policy is introduced in society and it changes everything around it. An example would be China's one-child policy decades ago. That's one policy, it changed economics, it changed culture, it changed reproductive health, and it changed the future of China all the way today and long into the future. So four types of futures, and you will notice that the way they're described, it's not in terms of whether they're positive or negative, dystopian or feel good, but they just are. And that's, I think, one critical part about thinking about the future, to try and avoid to think of them as positive or negative, but they just are. And then from there, there are activities, it's also in the guide, where moving from the futures, what are then the strategic insights that you can do to build precisely the institutions and the frameworks to bring them to life? What does it mean for our staffing? Which office should we close and open? How much resources should we dedicate to this current program? And what new program should we be considering? So we have another question. What would you say to convince someone who is hesitant of allocating their organization's resources, time and funds to foresight work? So what I do is really almost like a guerrilla kind of approach where I ask them not to dedicate a lot of resources at first. The best approach really is to not make it this new intimidating thing, but really introduce it in bits that people find really useful, small scale by small scale. And I mentioned one of that earlier, which is looking at signals of change that people are currently not looking at, but if they scale and become mainstream, they could change everything forever. And so helping people basically read the news differently or even read different kinds of news aside from the New York Times or BBC, those small things, and then you will see the difference and the organization will see the difference in the kinds of ideas that people come up with. And then you build those little muscles and people will see the aggregation of them and realize we are actually doing foresight. Do we want to do this systematically now and devote a bit more time and resources to doing this in a systematic way? 
So thank you, Chris, Nat, and everyone here today for this thought-provoking conversation about the future. We'll link to the Just Labs foresight guide and other resources in the episode description. And we'll be back again soon with more exciting conversations about civil society futures and innovation. Until next time, 